Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Let me give a big shout out first for the people who came up and said hi at the World Outlook Conference. All of that is terrific. Great to see people. Great crowd. Great information, by the way. And speaking of great information, that's what we're going to have for you today. I'm going to talk about something that starts with a personal experience, and that's I've been scammed. I've been scammed, when I think about it, about three times over the course of several years. But maybe you've noticed this too. But we've had an increasing amount of online scams, and some are very sophisticated. But, I mean, is there a day that goes by that I don't get some sort of email that says you haven't paid this bill? And the big thing is they usually do it from reputable organizations. Of course, it's not them, but that's why you look at it. Well, I'm going to talk to uh, Simone Liss from the Better Business Bureau. She's present there at the Better Business Bureau. There's things we got to talk about. And this is just one of those things I want to make sure that you're not scammed because I can tell you it's a huge nightmare. So as I say, I'll talk to Simone about that. I'm also going to talk to Bob Hoy. Bob is one of the foremost, if not the foremost, sort of market historian. And I want to ask him what happens in what we call a post-bubble contraction. We had the bubble. I think we all agree on that. We looked at what happened uh, to real estate, to stocks, to cryptocurrencies, to NFTs. That list was a long one. We saw it over the last couple of years, but now that has clearly changed. So what can we expect? What does history tell us to expect, and where can you find safety? I'll get that from Bob Hoy. I also got Aussie coming up. We're going to talk scams with Aussie too. You know, that real estate scam, but presto, you find out there's a mortgage on your home, or you find out that your home was sold. I think there's some important information to know about that, and we'll get that from Aussie Jurek. Plus, Victor and Michael both talking about what happened in the interest rate world this week with the Federal Reserve. So, as I say, oh yes, and of course, a goofy. And I have a great quote of the week. You don't want to listen to anything else in the show? Go to the quote of the week. I'll tell you, it's shocking. All of that coming your way. But first, this past week, uh, the Prime Minister is about to meet with the Premier to discuss health care funding. Prime Minister Trudeau stated, our universal system has long been the model to the world. You know, I, I, I got to say, I don't know why he regularly sets himself up for ridicule with that kind of statement, but he does do it regularly. I mean, so much so I decided a few years ago, to put him in the goofy Hall of Fame along with the two other occupants, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Otherwise, they would continue to dominate the Goofy Award. So instead, I gave him each a Lifetime Achievement Award. But I couldn't let saying our universal system has been the model to the world go. Not with 11,581 people dying, waiting for treatment in 2020-21. Over 26,000 since 2018. I mean, surely the families of those that died deserve more than that kind of glib. I mean, 50,000 people are forced to leave the country every year. Well, that was pre-pandemic, even higher numbers in some years. But by all indications, travel restrictions are now lifted. The number of Canadians who are forced to leave the country for medical treatment is on the rise again. I mean, denying the evidence is not only insulting to the public, certainly to the say, family members of people who've died, but it's also dangerous. You know, both the Supreme Court of B.C., Supreme Court of Canada have acknowledged that patients suffer needlessly, even die waiting for treatment. Now, I appreciate that some people don't care. Most of our politicians clearly don't care. But I want to know what the number is then. How many would have to die after waiting a medically unaccepted time for treatment? I mean, not 11,000, 12,000. Is it 15? Is it 20? Is it 30,000? I mean, how many before we'd accept it's a problem? And it's not just the prime minister who's in denial. I mean, he may be taught by the NDP's Jagmeet Singh, who just this week railed against the use of private care. 
Really? Does he include using private care by unionized workers hurting the job or MPs? How about if he had a fall and tore some knee ligaments? Would he wait a year or more like the rest of us for an operation? Or would he do what former head of the CAW Buzz Hargrove did? Bypass the wait times. Go to a private clinic. All of it was done in a week. Does he really expect us to swallow that he'd rather wait like the rest of us before he'd use a private clinic? I mean, wherever you stand on private clinics, we should be clear that our political leaders are quite happy, as both federal and provincial Supreme Court justices have concluded, quite happy to let patients suffer needlessly. Some even die. They're all happy to defend a system that the Canadian Institute for Health Information ranks dead last in terms of waiting for treatment among 11 Western countries. Similar to the Commonwealth Fund survey found the same thing in 2021, Canada ranked dead last among 11 developed countries when it came to receiving care within four hours of an emergency department visit. I think I bet many of us really understand that one. We're dead last among 11 developed countries when it comes to seeing a specialist within four weeks of referral and dead last when it comes to non-emergency surgery after it's been recommended. Now, I want to make one thing clear, and this is a distinction you have to make. I'm talking about the system, a system where there are no financial incentives to treat patients. I am not, repeat, not talking about the dedicated people who work in healthcare. Heck, it's that system that's burning many of them out. What many Canadians don't seem to understand that is one, Rationing healthcare through wait lists is government policy. It's in order to reduce costs, control costs. And two, it's government policy to restrict the number of doctors in med school, for example. Again, in order to control costs. And they had to. You can't have a system that the more than baloney-filled talk says we can have unlimited access with limited budgeting. Clearly doesn't. But you restrict the number of doctors in med school, great. Fewer doctors means fewer visits, fewer diagnostic tests ordered, fewer billings, and of course, extra wait time. Try finding a family doctor today. That's why for all the extra billions continually spent in the last 20 years, waiting lists haven't changed. And it's nothing to do with the lack of people working in the system. As McGill economist William Watson points out, Canada's healthcare system employs 1.6 million people including a 37% increase in doctors between 2010 and 2021, from something like 77,510 to 106,000 in 2021. That's an increase of 37%, nearly three times the rate of population growth. Number of nurses increased 20%. Number of other caregivers increased 37%. But we've also seen a surge in healthcare administrators. As Susan Martinick notes in her book, Patients at Risk, Canada has one healthcare administrator for every 1,415 citizens. Compare that to Germany, with a similar system. They have one healthcare administrator for every 15,500. Are you kidding me? Our system is not the envy of the world. That's my point. And the sooner we stop that delusional nonsense, the better. Well, certainly the better is for patients. The fact that not a single Western country follows Canada in any major aspect from management to patient care is a hint. Not a single system other than North Korea bans private care. Not even Cuba under Castro, as many Canadians who took advantage by flying to Cuba and paying for private care can attest. And just like, here's the thing, just like in so many other areas, common sense has been overwhelmed by ideology. Only this time, 
You or a loved one's life may depend on it. For 11,581 people waiting for treatment in 2021, it already did. Of course, this is the Weekend for the World Outlook Conference, Friday night, Saturday. But I want to remind you, if you weren't able to attend, you can still get the full online video featuring all the main stage speakers and select breakout sessions. All you have to do is go to worldoutlookconference.com, worldoutlookconference.com. You get the video and you can stream it right from your own home starting on Monday. So that's worldoutlookconference.com. I know you'll enjoy it. We've got so much more planned for you today, so I hope you stay with me. Of course, a week ago, we talked about the Bank of Canada. Now we have the Federal Reserve on Wednesday, you know, bumping their rates. What was it? They did four three-quarter percent increases and then a half point and now a quarter point. I'm bringing in Mike Levy. Mike, I mean, no surprise in the quarter point jump in the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, action. I mean, I think that was pretty much the consensus in the market. 100% consensus in the market, Mike. And basically, the slower pace of inflation casts out whether they're going to go over 5% in their Fed funds rate. But we don't know because we've got to look going forward. But what Powell did say is the disinflationary process has started, but the job's not fully done. Yeah, I guess those are the two key components. They're saying uh, progress has been made, but that last part, as you're saying, uh, and again, we'll see what the market price is in. We can't, you know, the first day or two, sure, and the market reaction instantly, sure. But you have to give it a little bit of air, you know, and see sort of through next week, you know, as people consider what was said, that kind of thing. But I, I got the same message, Mike, that the job's not done. So I think we can expect at least another quarter point coming up. Oh, we we can, Mike, and even more than that, because that's where the um, the Fed president, Jay Powell, went, is that there could be more, where in Canada, it's a wait and see. Uh, we've done our last one for now. We may see more in Canada in the fall, depending what the data is. But um, our governor, Tiff Macklin, just said, this is it. It's going to be a wait and see. In the U.S., it's going to be ongoing, and the decisions will be ongoing, Um they're probably going to hike through early May. That's the consensus uh, after he announced and had his press conference. And uh, if not beyond, if the economic outlook, um, unless the economic outlook uh, uh, softens, Mike, and the market reaction afterwards on Wednesday of this week was softer than the Fed approach, indicated by the fact that markets immediately after did not react negatively. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, again, I know I say this on a regular basis, but I feel I'm up against uh, an avalanche of sort of uh, misleading information, and that is about what inflation is measuring. You know, so again, uh, we always call it the baseline effect is what you're measuring against year over year. So now we're getting into the phase, you know, when we get to March numbers and April numbers and May numbers, you're comparing to May 22. Well, we'd already had a pretty good jump in price increases. So I don't know. Are we going to still compound at that rate? I mean, keep in mind, you know, I think July in the U.S. was 9%. How can inflation yeah. not, you know, the rate of change in pricing not come down from that? Uh, it, 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 it's literally impossible, Mike, because of what the damage they've done. When I say the damage, that's maybe unfair, but the reaction to the housing market, look what it's done. And, and you go through a slew of other data, and it has been, in fact, impacted. But to me, the conundrum is the fact that the market 
was already pricing in rate cuts in the back half of the year, which it's doing right now, Powell expressed his personal view that he did not see that happening. So there is one side and there is the other, and that line is drawn. It's not me guessing. He really made it clear he doesn't see it happening if he if it does happen and he does it. But right now, you cannot get any sure path. So I think going forward, as you say, in the next week or two or three or even a month, as more data comes out, we're going to get a sure idea of what's going to transpire rather than listening to a Fed president or a Bank of Canada governor where they lay out what the road forward is in much different ways. I still smile, though, Mike, thinking going back a few years when uh, the market uh, sort of was coming out of the pandemic low, the Federal Reserve made it very clear they're going to push rates down, and everyone said, well, don't fight the Fed. But now we don't believe the Fed anymore. We don't believe them because he's been very clear, as you say, that, you know, we're not seeing a rate decrease in 2023, but the market is saying, yes, they don't believe him. I'm just saying that's an interesting sort of a dilemma that we're, we're facing here. Well, it really is. And the systems, and this is for our listeners to the podcast, the systems are different. The governor of Bank of Canada takes input and makes the decision. It's almost like a democracy in the U.S. Fed, and the Fed presidents get to come to the table. They get to be influenced by the Fed president, but they actually get to express their opinion and vote. And uh, there are a couple of different sides. The Bank of Canada, Bank of England, the Central Bank of Japan, uh, the European Bank, they all come out with a solid statement, everybody on the same page. That's not happening right now in the U.S. And to me, one of the biggest problems of that not happening is that it brings a state of not being sure about where the market is going. It's not giving people confidence. I think that's where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, there's 12 Federal Reserve districts in the states alone, you know, <laughs> offering differing opinions. Yeah, but as usual, I mean, we're we're like the Fed. We should be hired, Mike, because we're giving it a wait and see. We'll see what the data says. We'll see what they go uh, forward. In the meantime, Mike, uh, of course, you're busy, World Financial Conference. But after that, take a break. Enjoy the week. You too, Mike. Thanks. Time now for the quote of the week. Well, actually, I have quite a few quotes for you. The January 31st issue of Newsweek features a column by medical researcher, PhD candidate Kevin Bass, entitled, It's time for the scientific community to admit we were wrong about COVID, and it costs lives. Mr. Bass describes himself as someone who, in his words, staunchly supported the efforts of the public health authorities when it came to COVID-19. He states that he believed in, quotes, that the authorities responded to the largest public health crisis of our lives with compassion, diligence, and scientific expertise. I was with them when they called for lockdowns, vaccines, and boosters. I was wrong. We in the scientific community were wrong, and it cost lives. He goes on to make three broad points that I invite you to at least consider. Number one, like many suggested, but were suppressed, intimidated, or worse, the measures were not based on science as much as they are based on personal preferences of those making the decisions, then justified after with using data. Two, he goes on to say in quotes that, we made science a team sport, and in doing so, we made it no longer science. It became an us versus them, and they responded the only way anyone might them to. I mean, by resisting, end of quote. 
Come on, anyone with a pulse will recognize the us versus them attacks by politicians who saw a political opportunity, you know, out of the pandemic response. By the way, which Liberal MP Joel Lightbound confirms, there was a decision made to leverage those pandemic divisions for political gain, hence the government's flip-flop and things like vaccine mandates. And three, Mr. Bass goes on to discuss one aspect that I'm proud to say that we talked about right from the outset of Money Talks, and that is the inherent elitist attitude of political leaders, the vast majority of the media, and the medical community. Mr. Bass states in quotes, we systematically minimize the downside of the interventions we impose. Impose without the input, consent, and recognition of those forced to live with them. In so doing, we violated the autonomy of those who'd be most negatively impacted by our policies, the poor, the working class, small business owners, blacks and Latinos, and children, end of quote. You know, for me personally, the epitome of that attitude was contained in that constant refrain, we're all in this together, as if lockdown restrictions impacted me or members of parliament or medical officers making the rules, the same as someone Maybe their circumstance was, I live in the downtown core, I've got a couple of kids, we've got a one-bedroom apartment. Or somebody with an intellectual disability. Or someone like a business owner who was forced to shut down their business. Or people were threatened at work if they didn't want to be vaccinated. No, I didn't suffer those things. And I feel sorry, and I must admit some contempt for the politicians, medical officers, members of the media, and anyone else who doesn't recognize that who instead thought their job was to purport, uh, support the government narrative, not the public. And finally, Kevin Bass identifies what I think is the overriding problem that literally caused massive hardship, and as he says, loss of lives, when he states, the problem was not people's ignorance of the facts. It was the organized antagonism and censorship against anyone presenting data that was contrary to the mandate agenda. Well, you know what? I noticed all the way along there was a more robust debate in the states, despite the government's efforts and agencies like the FBI to censor discussion on social media, for example, much more robust than in Canada. So I think the hope for a full and frank discussion, what is very much needed, what went right, what went wrong during the pandemic and the response is just wishful thinking. There's going to be no mea culpa in Canada. I don't see the kind of maturity that would take. This is a subject I've been dying to do, and I, I see it as a public service. But you know what? I'm trying to avoid a major problem for you. I had one going back a few years when I got an email from a friend, someone I knew. But what was remarkable is the email sounded like it was from, uh, from him. He was asking my advice on a, a particular financial issue. So that was normal kind of in our conversations. I clicked on it, and the nightmare began. And that was sort of my first experience with, man, is there problems out there, let alone any other scam. I was scammed during our Olympics in 2010, you know, by something. So as I say, I've been dying to get a chance to talk to Simone Liss. She's president, CEO of the Better Business Bureau. Simone, thanks for finding time for us. But I guess I'm not like I'm not an unusual call to you about problems. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, we see all types of scams. And so you would think that I would be an expert. And I can tell you that, you know, as I see things all the time and I really have to second guess myself. 
Um, so this is a common problem, and, and we know that online scams are on the rise. And yes, I was just going to ask you that. Are you seeing an increase, also an increase in sophistication, kind of, or or maybe they just have a diff- different avenue gets popular for a while? Yeah, I mean, with scams, they're kind of like a business. So really, we see a scam will start to die down in popularity or a, a method almost for connecting people might mm-hmm. die down in popularity. And then when it becomes kind of novel again, you know, the scam artist will use that. I mean, you know, text is a great example of that. I mean, a few years back, people were getting so much scams that people weren't paying attention. Um, and then it started to now it's starting to be used more effectively to grab people's attention again to the, pa- the fact that we start to see more loss. Is there any sort of set rule? Like I, I set a rule for myself after that unfortunate experience a few years ago. I don't open attachments. I had to personally email every single person, you know, on my whole list. And, you know, people who hadn't heard from me in seven years. Oh, great. I'm hearing from him now that he may have sent a virus to me, you know, that kind of thing. So I just sort of say, don't open anything from me unless I phoned you directly or I said it's coming in the next two minutes. You know, are there rules that you suggest just for the layman like myself? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, some of these scams are so terrible that even with our smartphones, we could be scrolling and inadvertently open them. So, I mean, I'd say you know, first thing you want to make sure you've got everything set up to try to filter out as much as you can. So put up firewalls to help use the tools that have been created to, to try to eliminate some of these to begin with. Uh, the other part, to your point, is if it's from someone you don't know at all and it sounds like an opportunity or an offering or, you know, they're connecting with you and they want to give you something or it's limited, like some sort of pressure to get your attention, I would say don't open, don't do not do anything with it. If you want to do anything with it, then you can take a screenshot and send it to either, the, you know, the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre or to us. Um, but honestly, the best practice is to delete and move on. It's been interesting, obviously, with the explosion of online, uh, you know, online shopping, I, I still sort of get very uncomfortable unless, of course, I know Amazon, you know, or, you know, some other big name. But, you know, when I, I'll get a lot of these ones will, will go, you owe money, you know, and just click here and pay it. But even more threatening, I can also it's not always that it's, it's more threatening. You know, we're about to report you to X. I know that there were some scams about the Canadian Rev, uh, Canada Revenue Agency. You know, you owe Canada Revenue Agency money. And, you know, a lot of people go, oh, my gosh, you know, yeah. uh, so I. Yeah, I was going to say impersonation scams are really common. Um, and, you know, you're right on in the fact that they are using reputable organizations' names to catch your attention, um, and they want to play on your feeling of fear. Uh, so if you're getting an email from, I would say, Amazon. Amazon is like one of the number one uh, impersonated organizations, and part of that has to do with how um, buyers' behavior changed you know, during COVID, we all moved to shopping more online and becoming very comfortable with shopping online. Uh, you know, the flip side of that is we see more scams that are targeting people with, you know, delivery notifications that are fake or, you know, you've got a problem with your account or, you know, things that are really around online, the online arena. And then, of course, just you've purchased something thinking you've gotten this great deal and it never arrives because there's no deal. You're, you're dealing with some sort of fake company altogether or, or you've gotten something and then instead of getting this fancy new car you thought you ordered, and obviously this is a, you know, maybe a slightly exaggerated case, you get like a little toy car. So it's, it's things like this we really need to be careful with and really understand who we're dealing with. 
I feel like I'm doing a, 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 a segment of this is your life, Mike, because I can tell <laughs> you right now, Simone, <laughs> I realized I never received something I ordered before Christmas. And it was the old, it wasn't, but the other thing I thought it was interesting, it wasn't like so expensive that I had to sit and really think about it. It was like 1995 and, you know, you get a mansion. And the other one, I just, uh, I, I didn't do this one. But I wanted to. Uh, it was a free iPhone 14, and I didn't have to do much. And I think it was like ten bucks worth of stuff, and you automatically get one and whatever. I didn't do that. Let's be clear, because people should stop laughing at me. But uh, yeah, exactly as you say. I mean, uh, purchasing something online that is too good to be true, or you hope it's true, uh, yeah. probably a good sign. But uh, yeah, I've done those ones too. Well, and these. I mean, these guys are really tricky. I mean. Um... My husband, you know, is a great example. He does a lot of online shopping and he's, and he's a bargain hunter. Um, and so he needed some auto parts and he found what looked like a reputable website, ordered some auto parts. And in his case, he got something, but it was totally not what he, what he'd ordered. In his case, he'd ordered, I think he got like this, uh, what looked like a counterfeit ring. Um, and part of the reason why he was getting something was to add a level of barrier for when he does try to dispute the charges with his credit card company. So, I mean, you do need to be careful. You do need to kind of use your good sense and say, you know, the price that they're offering here is really, is, is it too good to be true? Um, and then the other part of that is like, even in a, a study that we did uh, in 2022, is one of the things that was super interesting is that people knew something was wrong, but they still decided to go forward and they still lost money. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like you need to do the one-two punch. Listen to your gut and then take the time to research the offer, offer, talk to someone independent, like really evaluate this business before you give them your credit card. Well, I remember this going back when the Vancouver Stock Exchange was the wild and woolly, and everyone agreed. There was no one who said there weren't scams happening on the Vancouver Stock Exchange. And yet, if I talked to someone in particular, they'd agree, but not this one. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the ability to rationalize something you want to be true. Gee, I love these shoes. They didn't have my size, so I bought something six sizes too small. You know, all, all that whole list of things. And I can't let you go without asking though some specifics here. Are there more? Uh, do you have a list of what are the more more popular scams right now? Kind of thing. Well, when it comes to things that are happening online, the ones that we saw most often um, with monetary loss, so people actually losing. Mm -hmm. So obviously we talked about online purchase uh, scams. That's that's about 89% of the reported scams. So you can see that's a that's a big amount, um, and loss from that ranges from you know someone who's buying a, a pet online to you know someone who's buying something really small and and it's not a big deal for them. Um, cryptocurrency scams, and so that's a combination of trying to get into a market that might be hot, uh, you know, and and dealing with someone who's not reputable or uh, paying with cryptocurrency and being scammed that way. So that brings our number up to about 87% of reported scams. Well, especially I think of FTX when you say that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Gee, I only, somebody says, I only lost 100 bucks. They lost $32 billion. So there yeah. you go. Yeah. Huge amount of opportunity for loss there. Uh, romance scams. So, right, you're looking for love. You're looking to connect with someone. Um, and what's interesting about romance scams is often you might start online and then move to another platform really quickly um, with the idea of being to build trust and build connection. 
And then it kind of reminded me of what you were talking about with the investment scam is, you know, you start to give money to someone who's telling you that they love you and they need help. And then the more you invest in that relationship, the more money you give, the more legitimized it feels um, until someone comes in and says, hey, this isn't a real person. You're 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 dealing with a scam artist. So it's it's quite heartbreaking in that way. I think there's a couple of Netflix. I'm being serious. A sort yeah. of a series yeah. documentaries. I, I mean, I, I had no, I had no personal experience with that. Again, let's make that clear. But no, but it, it's it's amazing uh, how many people have been sucked in by that kind of thing, or unfortunately, tragically, they've been hurt yeah. by it. I should say, better way of putting it. You know, they've been hurt and and that kind of thing. Is there still stuff going on like door to door, or you know? Uh, I guess online is just so prominent, but is there that kind of stuff we should be aware of? How about charities soliciting on the street, that kind of thing? Oh, all of that's still there. I mean, um, I think the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre just put out a notification about the rise of telephone scams, right? Because, you know, you think it's just coming through your computer or through social media, because social media has now become a very uh, quick way to connect with someone, especially through online. Um, but phone, door, um, you know, you meet with someone and, and they're telling you they need your help. It's really hard to turn people away. Uh, the question is, is how quickly can they connect with you and get that emotional um, commitment from you? And then how do they keep you engaged in the scam? Uh, just to finish off, is there any kind of guidelines you'd offer people? Um, you know, just as I say, uh, I, I tell myself and my family, you know, do not give your credit card yeah. to anyone you don't know, you know, or if you don't recognize the name on that email or that product or whatever, just stop. Don't even explore it. If it if it's real, like I get if I got a notice from Revenue Canada, for example, if it's real, they'll find me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't need to respond immediately online. I think I think those are all great tips. I mean, you should always research before you give. If it's someone you don't know, someone who you haven't reached out to, you need to investigate it or research it. If you're dealing with an unknown company, uh, you know, there's there's lots of tools to help you. Uh, you can type scam and whoever it is you're dealing with now on that same tool that scams are coming in. It's a tool for you to identify whether you're, you're dealing with a reputable company. And whenever you're not sure, know that the BEB is here. So yeah. call us, email us. Um, reach out to BEB.org and we're happy to help. Uh, but the bottom line is, is if you haven't engaged in this, then you need to protect yourself by taking the time to research the offering. And as you say, take advantage of the Better Business Bureau on this. Uh, again, it, I, I was just joking uh, earlier today that I, I can't help myself. I do cost-benefit analysis of everything, and it's painful to be near me. You know, <laughs> I, I feel sorry for my wife. You know, we're driving one way. Actually, the, you'll save 0.17th of a liter of gasoline if we go there, And but the traffic is here. You know, it's that all that investment stuff in my life. But talk about a good cost-benefit, you know, cost, nothing. Contact the Better Business Bureau. Reward, you may avoid a heck of a, a problem going forward, or you at least get more confidence going forward, either one. You know, so, uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great suggestion. Uh, Simone, thank you so much for finding time. Unfortunately, I know you're busy. I say unfortunately because it's just, as I say, a growing problem uh, in our society. But, Simone Liss, thanks so much for taking time. Thank you, and, and please, if you ever need us again, we're happy to be there. Great. Love it.
I always love getting a chance to talk to who I consider probably the foremost sort of market historian. Obviously, deals with current markets, but it's all based on the framework of understanding clearly what the past has taught us about it. Bob Hoy is with me. Uh, pivotal events, but you can find him at chartsandmarkets.com. Bob, first of all, appreciate you finding time for us, but uh, I can't think of more important. I mean, we've just come out of this huge financial bubble. I think people all appreciate we had this record low interest rates. We had the bank active. We've had, you know, the government's flushing the system with money, et cetera. And the, you know, as we've been saying on Money Talks, the era of easy money is over. And I just wanted to start with by asking you, you know, this isn't the first financial bubble that's contracted. So give us a little perspective on what we could or should expect if history's any guide. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah, there have been now six great financial bubbles in history. Uh, Now, over, 1929, 1873, and then in the, and these are always in the world's financial center, New York now, but formerly London. And the first great bubble was in 1720 with the South Sea bubble. Now, the amazing thing, Mike, is that each was preceded by a great big global uh, boom in commodities associated with major countries at war. So, and a a decade earlier. So the pattern uh, has been that, uh, say, for example, 1920 was a huge global commodity boom with the First World War. U.S. rate of consumer price inflation got up to 23% in June of 1920. And then it crashed to minus 16% or something like that, which got the Fed's attention. So then the Fed was easy all through a period when a great financial mania was possible. So it added fuel to the flames of speculation, and it all blew out in 1929. And then in our own example here, the last high in commodities was in 2011, and here we had the peak of stock speculation in December, January, a year ago. And so the timing of a decade is on. Now, within each uh, financial bubble at the conclusion, there's some uh, identifying patterns. One is that in the final thrust of the bubble, copper's real price goes up and gold's real price goes down, which it did. So then uh, the other one is that uh, in the post-bubble environment, the senior currency goes up, which it has been, correcting since, uh, you know, uh, since uh, October. Uh, They had the DX up to very overbought at 114.75, and now it's down to just below 102. the other one is that the uh, real long interest rates adjusted for inflation decline with the bubble, which they did, and then they've gone up. And <laughs> we all know about rising long rates. So the four key items on a bubble, copper, gold, uh, senior currency, and long interest rates, have done what they've done through 
previous bubbles. So I'm quite convinced that we are in a post-bubble contraction. Now, this has been um, confused by having an absolutely unprecedented shutdown of the global economy on COVID. And then at the same time, the central bankers around the world uh, pushing out the money, uh, humping the money supply. So uh, where you can have a commodity boom, a com- strength in commodities, with the final phase of a financial bubble, uh, we had a terrific one. But if you take a look at things, you know, last, the CRB, everybody follows that, it got up to 360 in June. And then the low in October, November was 263, and now it's recovered a little to 280. So the commodities are not a runaway situation. Now, there is price inflation at the consumer level. The retail level is getting hosed. But I think that the basic commodities will, well, they can be positive into sort of March, April, and then perhaps after mid-year, the commodities will head down. And uh, the um, the key to it will be the U.S. dollar. Uh, it's it's a little oversold now, uh, but it's having facing constitutional problems in the U.S. as the Democrats are trying to get rid of their own president. And uh, so there's unusual things going on there. But underneath it all, when you take a look at the may, the timing, a decade after a huge boom in commodities, perfect timing for a blowout in financial assets. Now, what we want to do, Mike, is just get a measure of how extreme the inflation was in financial assets. In Germany, the 10-year note got down to almost minus 1% nominal. There's never, ever in all of the history of interest rates been a minus nominal interest rate. Never. And then you also had... Like in 1929, RCA, Radio Corp of America, was the darling big stock, 10 times gain. And you can find it, various previous bubbles, where you can find a stock or an index, 10 times is pretty good. But when you take a look at the cryptos and bitcoins, these were huge market caps that made almost infinite gains. And you've never had that before. Sure, in a bubble, you can have a a junior mining stock go from pennies to maybe, say, $20, $30. But that's a small cap deal. But you've never had anything like the big cap cryptos and bitcoins make such huge cap gains before. So this then nails it down as being not just a great financial bubble, but the greatest one ever in history, uh, based on the uh, speculation in in the fixed income side and in the equity side. It's been fabulous. So I'm sticking with my story, Mike, that the uh, bubble is over. It completed at about the timing, and some of the key items that we follow are generally on the path to another post-bubble contraction.
And, and uh, you know, typically, I think, as I say, uh, people are wishful thinking, but you get so much talk, Bob, about, you know, that is the Fed going to pivot, for example, but the implication there is, are we going to return to what we've just been seeing? You know, are we yeah. going to go back down? And, and because my stocks are underwater, gosh, I want the Federal Reserve to bail me out again. You know, that kind of talk. So, uh, I mean, yeah. what I'm hearing from what you say, the likelihood of that is very, very low. I mean, you can get rallies, you know, counter trend rallies, yeah. but the trend is down. Yeah. The, and then also the, the urge to look to the Fed to, to rescue the whole thing. Now, there's a wonderful essay in Barron's from July of 1932. And the nub of it was that every anti-deflationary measure taken by the Federal Reserve System, which meant buying bonds out of the market. So it's, to repeat, every anti-deflationary measure taken by the Fed is seen not to work. Now, mm-hmm. ironically, July 1932 was the end of the first bear market. It was really washed out. and uh, But Barron's had the handle on it. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, macroeconomists said that the Fed was deliberately tight, and that caused the crash, and the crash caused the depression. But no, I can point out that there, that the Fed was trying. It had the pedal to the metal all the way down through the contraction. And as I say, that editorial by Barron's in 1932 says that every anti-deflationary measure is seen not to work. So this, why would one... Uh, say anything different. Uh, we've had the pattern, and the Fed is trying, and everybody's relying on it, but you, you best not to rely on the Fed. Just take a look. Now, that crash into October, November was serious, and we've had the relief rally. And also, you get uh, a positive seasonals can come in from October to May. You know, the old saying, sell in May and go away. You can apply it to damn near anything. But so we're now looking out of that collapse in October, November, that probably things could be positive through into March. Uh, March, uh, often you can have a seasonal high for copper, and the copper has been acting well, and the, um, and the copper stocks have been acting well. So that's our guide here now. And uh, we, one of the things that we get often is, is um, where can you put your money safely to work? And T-bills are going to go back down to zero again, so anything like a cash deposit is going to end up with a zero return. Um, Junk bonds are going to get killed. The long-trade treasuries or long-dated Canada's, they can do a, a trading range. I don't think they're going to get trashed too much. As a matter of fact, they've been acting reasonably well lately. Even junk's been acting, has been firm. So, But it's tough to do it, and you've got to be dealing with a bond trader but or a bond desk. But for Canadians, if you can buy a four-year uh, good-grade corporate bond, then you can get a better income than from any kind of other deposits, which are going to go to zero. And you get a reasonable income, and uh, you're fairly safe there because the – if you've got a good grade corporate in four years, it's not going to go broke, and, and the bond gets redeemed at par. So as I say, this you got to be for that trade. You got to be dealing with an experienced bond desk. But uh, 
it's attractive. The other one that you get in a post-bubble contraction is where gold goes down in real terms in the bubble. It goes up afterwards for a long time so that in a long post-bubble contraction, the gold sector will do well. And uh, we took a shortcut on on gold defi- um, deflated by the CPI. Oh, it comes out once a month, you know, when they come out with the price inflator. But had more fun in taking gold and dividing it by commodities. And it tells a really good story. But what I want to do, Mike, is jump immediately to gold divided by crude oil. And that has been going up very nicely. Now, the importance of this is that in any uh, mine, or in any, including gold mines, the cost of mining is about 60% energy. And you may be getting local hydropower, but hey, energy is, relates to crude oil and hydrocarbons, and you've got blasting agents, and you've got fuel for the huge trucks and earth movers and stuff like that. So this is where we're looking at not to try and make money in the gold stocks based upon a collapse in the U.S. dollar. We're looking to make money in the gold stocks based upon their earnings improving because the costs of mining gold are falling relative to the bullion price. And we've got examples of this in the past. In 1929, Homestake was the senior producer, and it didn't change its mining rate. And uh, with the costs going up in 28 and 29, their earnings went down. The stock was not a performer because all the action was in in high flyers. But then uh, at uh, the stock had you could buy it in 1931 for nine dollars a share. And then by the time you get to end of 1932, the S&P was, was really hit hard uh, and was still weak at the end of 1932. Now, the reason why I'm taking that is because Roosevelt won the election and started fiddling around with gold in March of 1933. So you go to the end of 32, the gold was still at $20.67 a share, uh, an ounce. And Homestake, its stock was up about 130%. And their earnings were up about the same amount, about 130%, but no change in the price of gold. It was still $20.67. So anyways, when you get into 1933 with Roosevelt, and they start fiddling around with trying to depreciate the dollar, and they did relative to gold. So gold goes. So they, what they did is added to the natural trend, whereby the real price of gold would go up, and the gold stocks became fabulous. Uh, Homestake went up to the nine dollar purchase went up to sixty five dollars. Now in those days, gold miners didn't build assets. They paid out all their earnings by way of dividend. So here's a stock that you bought, say, at $9, and through the mid-1930s, it was paying $4 a share dividend. Staggering amounts of money to be made in the gold sector in a post-bubble deflation. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bob, I don't want to run out of time. I want to touch on similar, but I just want to say, 
So if there are some areas that you wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, what comes to mind? Junk bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, most stocks, the, a lengthy bear market. So even the idea of buying defensive stocks, I just look at those and say, well, they just go down slower. So we would uh, avoid a uh, general stock market and look for the 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 um, gold stocks to outperform the S&P. And uh, you know when the gold when if uh, at another time maybe the last half of the year the S&P gets whacked, so will the gold stocks. But in the meantime, they will be outperforming the S&P. And if you get that for a couple of quarters. You're going to have fund managers in Canada and in the States, equity fund managers whose rules may not allow them to buy golds. But you get two quarters of, of say, GDXJ outperforming the S&P. You're going to have your gold fund or your ordinary equity fund managers are going to have to position it because it's a good, going to be a good performer. And as I say, this is all ahead of us. Um, a, a a lengthy and at times fabulous bull market for the golds and uh, entry uh, well we've been accumulating that's been our view here and we've had some good rallies out of it but uh, as i say you still got a problem of the bear market in the big market so uh, one has to be careful in getting positioned well, obviously, there's so much to get to, Bob, with this, and that's why I invite people to go to uh, chartsandmarkets.com, chartsandmarkets.com. You can get a copy of Pivotal Events. Bob Hoy, thanks so much for finding time. we got to visit again in the near future, Bob. It's always a pleasure. Very good. We've got a special for new subscribers at a 25% discount over the next week. And they can just get that at chartsandmarkets.com, the details? Yep. You can just tap right into our system, yeah. Perfect. Chartsandmarkets.com. Bob Hoy. Bob, thanks very much. Mike, anytime. Looking forward to the next one. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Well, as we know from successive polls, the rising cost of living is the biggest concern for the majority of Canadians. But now, of course, it's not just that my food prices or my rent's gone up, et cetera. You've got to add the rising cost of interest rates, at least for a huge chunk of Canadians. I mean, not everyone has debt. Not everyone has a home mortgage, that kind of thing, or a home line of credit. But it obviously impacts a lot of us because the recent polls find that nearly two-thirds of Canadians are feeling the financial stress. Not a surprise that those in the bottom of, say, 15 to 20 percent of income earners face the greatest challenge. But as time goes by, that number, that percentage kept growing. And it's straightforward. Why? Because maybe you had three months worth of savings that could help you with the higher prices or the higher interest costs. But as we keep going on, now we're a good year into these higher prices. Uh, we're about 10 months into the growing uh, increase in interest rates. Hey, more and more people are feeling the pinch. You know what's really worrisome, though, is this that bottom to 15, 20% of income earners are actually adding on to their existing debt levels in order to pay the bills. Hey, now, I know this, that maybe you're lucky. You're part of the 40% of Canadians for whom higher prices, higher interest rates are, yes, an inconvenience, but you're not worried about making ends meet or something like that. But for a growing number, as I say, it's worse than that. And that brings me to the shocking stat of the week. Looking at a new report out of the States that suggests the financial hardship may be even more severe than we anticipated. According to the Bank Crate's annual emergency fund report, 
68% of people in the U.S. are worried their savings wouldn't be able to cover just one month of living expenses if they lost their primary source of income. 57% of U.S. adults are currently unable to afford a $1,000 emergency expense. And again, maybe it's not surprising, but it's the younger people who feel that the most. I mean, 85% of Gen Zers, you know, people aged between 18 and 25, and 79% of people aged between 25 and 40 are worried about covering any kind of an emergency expense. Now, obviously, you know, we've seen the rise in interest rates have a dramatic impact on homeowners and stock investors because, you know, asset values have fallen. But maybe it'd be interesting to consider if more people are just simply impacted because of the higher prices than falling asset prices, you know, higher rates, higher, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. It's interesting. I'm sure that's what the Federal Reserve, other central bankings are looking at, and politicians too. But it's a tough dilemma, as I say. We're always caught between a rock and a hard place. I feel like I'm bringing in the busiest guy in show business. Ozzy Jurek joins me right now. I know, tons of preparation, big speech, all of that stuff, Ozzy. I know you've been working hard. But I want to talk about something that dovetails nicely with what we were talking about earlier in the show is about fraud. And it's something that you talked to us about a few weeks ago. And I said, we got to do more on that. And that is somebody comes home from vacation or maybe they came home after a trip or another type of trip or something like that and they find out, Hey, my house has been sold. I mean, I'm chuckling. That must be an absolute nightmare. I'm not chuckling for the people involved. It just, it seems so incredible that that would happen. But it's not just once or twice. Well, that's the crazy part. And it isn't just the house that's being sold. Even a bigger part of this fraud that that is going on is that you want to say to your wife, you know, Martha, let's get a mortgage on the house. And you check, and there is already a mortgage on the house that you didn't know of, several hundred thousand. And so title insurance companies have lost, now just you got to sit down for this, $200 million since late 2019. In fact, the Chicago title insurance company in Toronto has received more than 80 mortgage fraud claims since that time, and they're mostly from Vancouver and Toronto. Wow. So somehow they're able to go into a financial institution and borrow money against the home. But I mean, the financial institution would do, you'd think, thorough due diligence before they part with a few hundred thousand dollars. I mean, and they so they must be finding somebody else's name on the title. Like, I, I mean, this is just so mind blowing. And I think we should note that I have no experience with this, but, <laughs> you know, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, the, the big thing is it isn't just sort of two guys that say, okay, let's try and, and make some money. No, it's organized crime, according mm. to uh, CBC, that has mortgaged or sold at least 30 houses in Toronto alone without the owner's knowledge. And so what they're looking for, Michael, is that the, 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 the research uh, um, house without a mortgage because it's very mm-hmm. difficult to get a second mortgage because they got to talk to the first mortgagee things but if it's clear title then secondly of course if they steal your ID and then they actually hire professional stand-ins look good-looking guy couple that might be uh, the proposed to be the owner or proposed to be a tenant and of course they put that together with if you're away from the house you know maybe you're overseas in one particular case the old guy was 91 he was moved to an old age home relatively quickly the the heirs didn't know what to do with him he didn't die he was just 
So they left the house empty. Well, there you go. Uh, somebody went in, pretended to be the owner. The financial institutions gets an ID given. It looks good. It matches. Boom, they give the money. So it is mind-boggling how relatively easy that is. Wow, it is. It's just I'm just absolutely flabbergasted, let alone, as you said, you're talking about someone who all of a sudden finds out, hey, someone else has got a mortgage on my house or my apartment or my townhouse. But what about the guys who actually have find out that their house has been sold? That's you know, right. knock, a, I mean, couple, knock on the sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, yeah, a couple in Europe, you know, found out on the way back that uh, somebody else opened the door. And uh, what do you mean that it's your house? It's my house. No, it's my house. It's, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, it just happens more, not as often because it takes longer, right? You gotta, you're not gonna have a house with a clear title mortgage, but you're, you also, in one particular case, they brazenly put it up for sale. They put a for sale sign on with the faulty name. So when calls came in, it was the fraudulent people that had the guts and the nerve to answer them. So, in fact, apparently the Toronto police was putting out a circular last summer looking for a specific couple that had been hired by the organized crime on several houses. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's wild. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, obviously the, the thing is everybody's sitting there going, I don't want it to happen to me or, you know, or someone I know. So uh, what, what would be the first step if you're just saying, look, this is, you know, these are professionals, but what would be a first step to protect ourselves? First thing people got to remember, if you have an insurance on your house, you must by law, by insurance law, by the contract you signed, you have to have somebody go to the house that's empty every three days. That's if you don't oh. have it, your insurance is invalid. So that's a good thing anyways. So if the house is empty, you must have it checked regularly. And also, um, if you are free and clear on your mortgage, I mean, check the title. But the thing to do, number one, is get title insurance. We are not used to title insurance because we have a torrent system we think is much superior to the U.S. But in the United States, everybody gets title insurance against fraud. It's a business. And you can, for a few hundred dollars, you can do that yourself. But absolutely foolproof is what, we, what people don't realize is that we have duplicate indefeasible title certificates. Now you can get that from the land titles office and without the two titles, nobody can do anything on your house. However, you better not lose that duplicate title certificate. So take it out when you get it, put it into your bank deposit and never look at it again. But that way you're totally protected. And I mean, and just speaking of uh, property assessments, if we have a property assessment, um, let me like share with me what we do at that point. Um, I mean, would I get that property assessment notice if I wasn't on title? Is that one of the criteria that you have to be on title? Otherwise, why would I be getting it? Yeah, it would be mailed to your address. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so but you, 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 in terms of you mean in terms of the valuation? Well, I'm just saying if you just answered it, but it's saying, OK, so they'll send it to the house. Yeah. And even if I'm not the rightful owner, you know, then I'll have to deal with it. But I'm saying it, it, it wasn't predicated on the fact that I'm on title. It's just it's at the address. This house has been assessed at X. But that's what I mean. It's a it's a well, you know, if you're the only what they really want is they don't really care to sell the house because mm -hmm. that's, a, that's more complicated. You need at least seven days or 10 days to get it done. Ideally, you get a mortgage and the, the bank checks out the title is there. The people are there. They have ID there's the check, right? And then they're gone. And then immediately goes into crypto and you'll try and find the money. The, the scary thing, Michael, isn't that the, the odd guy or girl came up with an idea to defraud somebody. 
This, according to the police in Toronto and according to CBC, is organized crime running major scams. Wow. And again, back to what you just said, though, get uh, you know, insurance. I mean, uh, you know, get title insurance, title insurance here. And that's something, as you say, that maybe we don't have a lot of experience with. But man, let's put it on everybody's lift after hearing this story. You bet. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, Ozzy, I know busy times, big speeches, all that. You're busy time of year for you in general. Appreciate you finding it for us, though. Well, thank you very much, Mike. And remember, there is nothing better than a friend. Of course, unless it's a friend who has chocolate. <laughs> Okay, there we go. Hey, by the way, you can find uh, Ozzy at uh, ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca, the claim being he uses more of the letter Z than any other Canadian, (laughs) ozbuzz.ca. Let's go live to the trading decks. Actually, that's all that uh, Friday and Saturday about are going live to the trading desk with a whole bunch of uh, stars and featuring our own Victor Adair. Uh, Vic, I mean, it's been kind of an interesting couple of weeks because we got the Bank of Canada a week ago. We got the U.S. Federal Reserve on Wednesday. I, am I am I right to say both not as hawkish, not as pro-rate increase as uh, as they were, let's say, just a couple of months ago? Oh, certainly. I mean, they've been stepping it down. I mean, the Fed a couple of months ago was doing 75 basis points, then 50, and then 25 this week. The Bank of Canada has been on a somewhat similar trajectory, although the Bank of Canada last week had signaled that they're going to hold for a while now. The Fed didn't talk that way. Yeah, and again, uh, but both still saying a sort of a wait and see in this way. I meant data-driven, I should have said it, better better put that way. Uh, data-driven, you know, that uh, all of a sudden I would assume the Fed will stop raising if they all of a sudden saw a really uh, declining inflation number, for example, or they wouldn't stop if they saw a big jump in inflation. I think for both the Bank of Canada and the Fed, they raised rates aggressively in 2022, and they know there's going to be a lag before that impacts different aspects of the economy. Call it consequences, to use your word. You know, there'll be consequences for what they've done. And and I guess they assume it's prudent, now that they've been so aggressive, got rates up to the levels that they're at, that they, they should do a bit of a wait and see how much impact this is going to have. Well, again, and you're looking at, uh, for, interesting, I'm not surprised that we've had a strong January, but we have that January indicator, isn't it? The first uh, month, you know, sort of determines uh, the overall year in a high percentage of time. So it would bodes well for the overall markets for the rest of the year that we had a strong January. Yeah, well, we had a strong January after having a weak December. Yeah, And December is usually a good month, too. But I think what was going on, and I'm going to generalize here, but in in December, you know, the tail end of last year and last year was a horrible year on balance. You know, the stock market was down, particularly the the high flying stocks were down more than, say, the, the big cap Dow stocks. The bond market had a horrible year. You know, so December, maybe people were hoping the market would turn around. But December, it seemed the obsession was, oh, my gosh, here comes a recession. And that's going to bring a decline in corporate earnings. So, you know, we had a soggy December. The tone in January with the stock market up, and I want to say up, again, we always make a point of it. It's not all one market. Some of the dogs of last year were the really hot stocks here in January. But on balance, the the, the stock market was higher in January with the thinking being, 
yeah, if there's going to be a recession, it'll probably be a pretty mild one. And, you know, the Fed's uh, cutting interest rates. I mean, it just doesn't get any better. So let's go buy. Well, uh, as you may you'll have, you know, heard with Bob Hoy earlier on in the show, Bob says, yeah, you can get that rally, you know, as he said, into March, et cetera. But the long term trend for him is certainly negative as we get for a post contract, you know, post contraction or post bubble contraction. So I, I, I'm not so sure if anything's been determined. I mean, you on a, as a trader are looking at all these ins and outs and moves, looking for opportunities, et cetera. I'm not sure if the jury is certainly still out for longer term investors. Well, as I say, the, the markets have taken on risk lately. So there, there was a risk that they'd overdone it. You know, yeah. there was that. And uh, I think the, the reason, you know, if you get really simple, last year the Fed was being aggressive. It looks like the market figures this year the Fed's going to take it easy. So, you know, it, it's, it's just that kind of environment that the bullish folks have been looking for. But I should point out that money market funds, have got more money in them than ever. And you and I might say, you know, what this means is people realize that there's an alternative to being in the up one day, down the next stock market when you can get 5% or something on a GIC. So people are, in a way, walking away from the wild action of the stock market and going to the relative safety of short-term fixed income. Yeah, I think that's just a huge point. Uh, you know, capital is flowing if they feel there is some safety there. Uh, and yeah, and especially after you've been training people for two to three years saying 5% looks awful sweet, you know, four and a half, five 5% looks awful sweet compared to what uh, they've been looking at. So I'm not surprised when I saw that number, how much cash had flown into those kind of money market funds, you know, that way. And as Bob Hoy was saying, he likes sort of a four-year kind of time horizon. He feels safe with that. But again, it's all because the yield's worth taking. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things I've said on the show here a few times was that when the interest rates are down at zero and kept down there, people who really should be savers tried to become investors and, and we'll call it traders or speculators. And, you know, it, that's a tough game. And uh, I, I think folks that are more inclined to be savers in their heart are probably welcoming the higher interest rates. And, and hence, that's why we're seeing the flow of funds in a, in, into money market and sh other short term, um, you know, safe instruments. Well, I'm going to be interested to hear from you next week uh, after, of course, you're on the final panel of the World Outlook Conference, uh, hearing some of these fine speakers and analysts and just getting your take on the whole affair. As you say, you love it there because you, you get input about what ideas maybe uh, you hear something. I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, all of those things and a reminder that people can get the World Outlook Conference by going to worldoutlookconference.com. You can get the video can be there by Monday for you to look at all that kind of stuff. It's worldoutlookconference.com. Uh, Vic, look forward to it. Uh, as I say, I've already put you on the spot. You're going to be my reporter next week. <laughs> well, I, I hope you can tell me what some of the questions are going to be, so I'll be prepared. <laughs> oh, maybe I'm, I'm holding out at this point. VictorAdare.ca, VictorAdare.ca. Time out for this week's Goofy Award. You know, it's an old story. Tax dollars spent, no measures of whether they were spent effectively. Actually, it's worse than that. There were no goals. The government has no idea what the spending achieved. Of course, that means the taxpayers have no idea if they got value for the tax dollars they spent. As I said, this isn't a new story. In fact, it's been repeated time after time 
chronicled by literally, literally every auditor general for decades. The only difference is the amount of money continues to grow, continues to explode. Case in point, the huge growth in expenditures on unaccountable paid consultants by the government. The Treasury Board states that the federal uh, departments and agencies spent $16.7 billion a year on consultants. And as Jennifer Carr, now she's the president of the 72,000 member strong Professional Institute of the Public Service says, this shadow public service plays, in her words, by an entirely different set of rules. Ms. Carr goes on to cite the global consulting firm McKinsey & Company. I mean, my gosh, which in the last five years has received nearly $92 million in federal contracts made even more questionable given that McKinsey's shareholder and former managing director is Dominic Barton. He served as an advisor to the Department of Finance, Canadian ambassador to China. In many cases, we'll make that most cases, the government has no idea what you, the taxpayer, got in return for the money spent. In fact, as Sean Boots, he's a senior policy advisor with the Treasury Board, states in quotes, it's hard to tell what work was involved, let alone how successfully the contract turned out or not. And adding insult to injury, by the way, the Treasury Board states there are numerous cases where consultants are now hired to check the work of the other consultants. And just before apologists start saying, well, why doesn't the government just hire more full-time staff? Well, they already have. No, no, this consulting is on top of this. As the Treasury Board states, the public sector employment's grown from 195,600 in 2015 through 254,300 last year. Well, it's a 30% increase. And keep in mind, it's not just salary, but you're going to have pension benefits, medical benefits, other benefits, uh, contributions to the Canada Pension Plan, holiday uh, pay, all of that kind of stuff, and a raft, as I say, of other non-salaried uh, forms of compensation. I mean, it's a huge number, though, of growth in the public sector, but it's you've got to add that number of private consultants. Are you kidding? I mean, few people seem to know what specifically those consultants are doing. And I'm talking in government. I mean, are they achieving the goals? Maybe more accurate to say, were there any meaningful goals in the first place? Because if you've read even a few Auditor General's reports, you know the answer is likely no, no goals. And the goofiest part is how few of us seem to care. Well, I do, as you could probably tell if you're a regular listener. But why? Because it's not only do I hate my own tax dollars wasted, I don't think I should be working full-time. Well, it's not full-time. Half of my pay goes to government. But especially on behalf of my children, on behalf of my grandchildren, who are going to be asked to take on this massive debt and the interest payments. I mean, this massive expansion of government should be closely scrutinized. What are we getting for the money? Why are we borrowing money that my kids and my grandkids have to pay off? I invite you to join me in that. Hey, that's all the time we have right now. A couple of things, though, very quickly. Again, if you weren't able to attend the World Outlook Conference, hey, it's been terrific. You can just go to worldoutlookconference.com, worldoutlookconference.com, and you can order the online version. You'll get it all. You'll be able to start using it on Monday. Lots of stock recommendations, commodity recommendations, and also the lay of the land. Beautifully explained by some of the top analysts in the English-speaking world. I mean, it's terrific, but worth the time. You can watch at your le leisure, but just go to worldoutlookconference.com. And in the meantime, I hope you join me on Mike's Money Talks on Facebook and Money Talks Tweet on Twitter. And in the end, you can always go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. 
I hope you have an absolutely fabulous week, and I appreciate you listening.